Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our panel discussion on the impact of mifepristone legal challenges on care in Massachusetts. My name is Adrienne Ortega. I'm a partner in the healthcare and higher education practices at Ropes and Gray and co-chair of the BBA Health Law section. I will be moderating today's panel. And joining me today are Catherine O'Connell-White, Vice Chair of Academics, Associate Director of the Complex Family Planning Fellowship and Director of Beacon Research at Boston Medical Center, Associate Professor of OBGYN at the Boston University Tobanian and Abedesian School of Medicine. Um, and we also have uh, Renee Landers, Professor of Law and Faculty Director, Health Law and Biomedical Law Concentration at Suffolk University Law School and Amanda Hainsworth, Senior Legal Advisor to Massachusetts Attorney General, Andrea Campbell, and Chair of the BBA Civil Rights Section, and Joshua Oyster, Partner in the FDA Practice Group at Ropes and Gray. So if you have any questions today, please submit them using the Q&A function and we'll address all questions if time permits. Uh, how about we jump in and begin with some background? Um, Dr. White, turning to you, could you please tell us what is mifepristone and how is it used in care? Sure. So mifepristone, or MIFI, for people who have a, a hard time saying the entire word, it's what we call it in, in the OBGYN world, has been used for decades around the world, even before it was approved in the U.S., and medication abortion is a safe alternative to what is more traditionally a procedural abortion, or what we call a DNC. There are two medications used in the process. Mifepristone or MIFI starts to separate the pregnancy sac from the wall of the uterus, and that's followed a day later by misoprostol or miso, which cause uterine contractions and expulsion of the pregnancy. There are other combinations of medications that they can be used, but this is the most safe and effective. It's most commonly used in first trimester abortion, but it does have a role in cervical preparation for second trimester abortion, and is the same medication process used for management of miscarriage, too. Thank you. And so could you talk a little bit about the importance of medication abortion, particularly in the post-Dobbs landscape? We're not talking about something that is rare or uncommon. Medication abortion represents more than half of abortions that take place in the U.S. And maintaining this option for care reflects the value that a lot of us put on choice, not just the choice to end a pregnancy, but the choice how to end it. Because not everyone wants a procedure. They may have a history of trauma. They may have medical history that would put them at risk of complications if they had a procedure, or they just simply can't access a procedure or a provider. Additionally, there's a growing option of what we call self-managed abortion, where patients, after a consultation with a provider online, can have the pills mailed to their house and they can do the process on their own. And with the right medications, good instructions, and clear follow-up. Self-managed abortion is very safe and very effective. And there are studies now published to show what we all knew that, surprise, surprise, people can manage things like this on their own. And I do want to point out that the biggest risk of a self-managed abortion is actually not medical, it's legal. Because depending on the states where people live, procuring the medications on your own may put you at risk of prosecution. So could you, you mentioned um, briefly the safety and efficacy. Could you talk a little bit about the what the literature says about the safety and efficacy of medication abortion? Yeah. 
Abortion and contraception are among the most well-studied uh, offerings or procedures in all of my fields of OBGYN. And there are more than 100 studies published since Mifepristone was approved about the safety of medication abortion. We know that the complication rate is incredibly low. It's very comparable to procedural abortion and exponentially safer than continuing a pregnancy, which is really the comparison that we should be talking about. And most of the time that people end up with an unexpected visit, let's say in the emergency room or in the doctor's office, it's most often for reassurance. Bleeding with an abortion can be really heavy and it can be really scary, even if you've been well prepared for it. And so even when people do seek emergency care, generally it's not actually an emergency, but assurance is always really good. Mifepristone has been under a REMS, which Joshua, I'm sure we could tell us a lot more about, which is supposed to be used for medications with serious safety concerns. It was actually, I think, more of a political decision, but it did then provide an extra layer of observation and data collection, and no safety flags have ever been raised about mifepristone. So this isn't a situation where there is debate or dissent in the medical community about the safety and efficacy, like there sometimes are about other medications, such as a recent medication approved to treat Alzheimer's about whether or not the risks really are worse than the benefits of a drug. This is one that there's uniformity in the understanding that mifepristone is safe and effective. Thank you, Dr. White. Um, well, that is helpful background just to orient us all to what is mifepristone and the importance of mifepristone generally in um, reproductive care. Um, Renee, let's turn it over to you so that we can start to dive into some of the legal issues, um, which I'm sure we've all seen, you know, the headlines about the recent mifepristone legal challenges. Um, there were two cases. Could you tell us about the background of the two cases, the AHM versus FDA and Washington versus FDA? Um, sure. Thank you very much. Um, the um, two cases, um, as Adrian mentioned, um, one of them uh, is the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine against the FDA, um, and then um, the uh, pharmaceutical company that has the is the holder of the um, the um, FDA approval for mifepristone, Danko Laboratories. The original approval um, <clears throat> was allowed as an intervener, as on the you know as a defendant along with the FDA in that case. Um, the um, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, um, H A A A H M, is an so they describe themselves as an association of pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists, uh, and then certain other um, so-called pro-life um, medical organizations, and then also several um, individual uh, physicians were plaintiffs in the case. Um, on um, April 7th, as everyone has read, the, uh, a district court judge for the Northern District of Texas in a division where only one judge sits um, issued uh, a nationwide stay in the FDA's 2000, you know, the year 2000 approval of Mifepristone uh, and a stay on all the subsequent changes in um the uh, uh, you know dispensing and uh, reporting obligations since that time. Um, the court at the time also stayed uh, its order for seven days to allow for an appeal to the Fifth Circuit, which is the relevant court of appeals in that um, part of the country. And then I'm going to summarize a little bit about the Washington case and then talk about some of the legal issues because there are you know some sort of comparable legal issues in both um, pieces of litigation. 
In Washington against FDA, 15 other states, in addition to the state of Washington and the District of Columbia, um, sued the FDA in federal district court in the Eastern District of Washington. And on the same day um, as the Texas decision was uh, was issued, a district court judge in um, Washington uh, issued um, an injunction against the FDA um, prohibiting it from altering the status quo and rights as to the availability of misfipristone under the uh, 2023 REM uh, in all of the jurisdictions, but only in the jurisdictions uh, that brought the litigation. Um, the case in Texas, um, it, the judge purported to issue a nationwide injunction, which is a whole other controversy going on in the legal community right now about the role of these, the ability of a, one single federal district judge to enjoin a, a, a federal policy nationwide. Um, so the, um, the issues are, so first of all, I guess this is kind of the, you know, kind of the um, one issue about the opinion in the Texas case is the use of language, because I think that's worth noting as we talk about these issues. Um, the uh, the court uh, refers to the fetus, which was the common terminology in um, uh, you know cases involving uh, access to abortion in the past. The, the court, the judge used the term unborn child. Um, reproductive healthcare providers become abortionists. Um, in describing the action of the drug, um, you know, other not like Dr. White's uh, really excellent uh, clinical description of what the drug, um, uh, the action of the drug, the efficacy of the drug, uh, the court said it blocks uh, progesterone, halts nutrition, and ultimately starves the unborn human until death, right? So, um, and then in describing the two drug protocol, uh, the judge wrote that the mifepristone uh, is used to kill the unborn human, and then the second drug, uh, misoprostol, uh, to induce cramping and contractions to expel the unborn human from the mother's womb. So really all of this uh, laden um, language uh, that um, is really uh, intended to you know, send political signals, and it's not really a signal about what, it's not really a a correct analysis of what the applicable law should be. So then what are some of the legal issues? Do you mind if I keep talking or did you have another question? Okay. No, this is great. Okay. So on the statute, there's a statute of limitations issue, uh, especially with respect to um, any uh, 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 challenges that the um, uh, AHM would bring uh, to the 2000 approval of uh, the FDA's two th year 2000 approval of mifepristone, the original approval. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, there's a general six-year statute of limitations uh, for challenges to federal policies. And so that, even the, federal, the district judge in Texas seemed to think that that was beyond the reach, that that, that could not, not the district judge, the Court of Appeals said that was beyond, perhaps beyond the reach of a legal challenge. But all of the FDA's actions since that time, the they started in 2016. The FDA, and Josh is going to talk about these in more detail probably, uh, started changing some of the prescribing uh, indications and the labeling. And all of those uh, would still be within that, uh, many of those would still be within the six-year um, uh, statute of limitations. Um, the other big issue in these two cases is, cases is the question of standing. Um, the claims of the um, uh 
of the uh, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine and the other plaintiffs in the Texas litigation uh, say that they're their standing on the uh, the idea that physicians would be providing care to pregnant and post-abortive women and girls who are seeking you know some of the treatments that Dr. White described in her presentation. Um, I, I would say that um, having uh, looked at a lot of standing cases in the Supreme Court's handling of standing cases uh, in recent years, this would really be um, a, a, a huge change in the standing doctrine and allow a lot of cases to go forward that uh, if, if this is the case and that um, I think that's why many of the drug manufacturers are concerned about um, aspects of this ruling among the reasons that they're concerned. Um, and then what are the claims of the states? So the, the states and the District of Columbia have a better claim on standing because the states are able to say that they will have unrecoverable costs to their Medicaid programs for surgical abortions and pregnancy care if the, if, if the drug is banned. Um, the practice restrictions on providers and pharmacists, including state employees, cause uh, compliance costs. Uh, that are unrecoverable and also um, uh, unrecoverable costs for compliance with the 2023 uh, REMS uh, and on patient agreements and licensure certifications. So all of those, um, uh, the district court in the Washington case found really demonstrated uh, a good claims for standing. Um, the state also claimed that it was uh, um, alleging standing on behalf of the to protect the health care of its citizens as parens patriae. And the court really didn't determine that issue because it said that the states had standing for these other reasons that I just described. Um, so other issues that are raised that I won't go into ex exhaustive detail, but we can have a conversation about um, <clears throat> a question about uh judicial uh, deference to agency expertise. This has been an ongoing problem with the current configuration of the court uh, in cases on environmental law, cases about some of the issues, uh, the um, uh, procedures or mechanisms put in place to address the pandemic. Uh, and this is starting, you know, we're now getting to the position of federal judges, you know, making scientific decisions instead of the agencies that Congress has delegated the authority to make these decisions for us. Uh, there was uh, also the district court in Texas seemed to revive a very old statute, the Comstock Act, which prohibits the mailing of um, uh, any kind of uh, 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 objects or mechanisms, uh, drugs that could be used for abortions. Um, that statute has for many years been interpreted to preclude only the mailing of illegal and unauthorized objects. And the FDA has approved these drugs. So, you know, resurrecting that statute to block the mailing of mifeprestone would have is, is really quite a radical uh, position by these courts. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, right now we're in the position because uh, the FDA and Danko Laboratories went for an emergency stay of the Texas court's order banning um, that would ban um, continued distribution of mifeprestone. Um, <clears throat> the Supreme Court has stayed that order until full litigation of the issues in the Fifth Circuit and perhaps it comes up on the merits to the, to the Supreme Court again. So the drug continues to be available while all of this is going on. Well, thank you, um, Renee, for the you know great discussion of those legal issues and understanding some of the legal issues 
that were brought before these two um, two different circuit courts, and then ultimately to the Supreme Court. Um, and and um, we understand that now, um, based on the Supreme Court's decision, um, it's effectively status quo um, in terms of operation. Uh, Josh, can can we just unpack um, the Fifth Circuit case and the next steps? So what happens now, um, now that the Supreme Court has made its decision? Right, right. So the, the, the Supreme Court stay was really just the sort of first first round of this of this litigation. As, as crazy as it was for those uh, a few weeks with briefing in the district court, then rapid briefing in the Fifth Circuit, then rapid briefing in the Supreme Court, and then stays, administrative stays, and more stays, and more news articles, and then a Supreme Court uh, stay on a Friday evening where, I mean, it was kind of getting a little crazy there that that, that Friday evening to you know, is the Supreme Court actually going to issue something before the deadline expires? And when people go home tonight, are they going to know what the rules are tomorrow? Um, but, you know, the Supreme Court did issue the stay where the case is right now is back in the Fifth Circuit under briefing on the merits of the district court's preliminary review order, um, where the government and, and Danko have filed their appellate briefs, various amicus uh, parties have filed briefs again, more amicus briefs, um, generally making the same arguments that have been made at every level so far. Uh, and then uh, AHM will file its response. There's oral arguments scheduled for May 17th in the Fifth Circuit, and, and then we'll see some, some decision thereafter from the Fifth Circuit. Uh, you know, on the the merits of the review of the district court's pre, uh, preliminary order, and, and important to note that the Fifth Circuit decision, even if it were to um, take the same position that the that the panel did um, in reviewing the request for emergency stay, it's the same position. There won't actually be an immediate effect of that because the Supreme Court stay basically applies throughout potential Supreme Court review. Um, so. Um, unlikely that the status quo, so to speak, is going to change in the near term, um, more likely that these appeals probably take longer to play out. Uh, and then also, you know, even once there's a decision on the preliminary injunction, there's still, the, you know, there's still the merits of the case, and you could actually you know, be going for the permanent injunction. And so the, the, all the litigation is likely to take a very uh, long time. But a few things I think to sort of keep keep in mind um, uh, that, that I like to talk about is as, as the Fifth Circuit is reviewing this, and, and a lot of it has to do with the the second guessing that the district court in Texas did of the FDA's approval of mifepristone and the approval of changes to to uh, to mifepristone. And so, before talking about exactly what the court did, um, a little bit more background on on some of the FDA's prior actions, just to just to situate everyone. Um, you know, as Dr. White explained. Uh, MIFI was approved. It's it's a two drug regimen. There's MIFI and there's MISO. And when it was approved in 2000, uh, it was approved for use for medical termination of intrauterine pregnancy through 49 days gestation, so for seven weeks. Um, and as part of that approval, FDA imposed restrictions on the distribution of mifepristone, including among others, an in-person dispensing requirement, provider attestation and reporting requirements, and a patient agreement requirement. And, and those were that was actually in the period before FDA or before, excuse me, the, the the law enabled FDA to apply what's called a REMS now. But FDA took advantage of some other provisions in its regulations that uh, enabled it to impose restrictions on distribution. And as Dr. White alluded to, there's a lot of reasons for that um, and, and some of them being being political at the time. 
Um, but 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 fast forward a number of years, Congress gave FDA the authority to require REMS, and basically all those restrictions got converted to a REMS uh, in 2011. In 2016, um, the key change with mifepristone was that there was approval of a supplemental NDA that applied for use through 70 days gestation. So we went to 10 weeks on the approved use. And then there are also a number of changes to the REMS, um, including some, some reductions in the number of visits that were sort of called for the way that the process worked for dispensing mifepristone. Um, and then one that um, ha has generated a lot of attention and, and comes up in, in, in assessing, in the way the courts have assessed the arbitrary and capricious uh, or lack thereof nature of, the, of FDA's actions, the issue of, in 2016, FDA took out a requirement on the REMS that providers who are prescribing mifepristone report non-serious adverse events other than death, report serious events other than deaths. So they still have to report deaths under the REMS, but they didn't have to report other, other events. Um, and I'll come back to why that uh, why that has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, and then in 2019, there was a generic for mifepristone finally approved. So in addition to Danko's version, there was another product now on the market from a company called GenBio Pro. Uh, and then in 2020, um, there are some interesting changes that came about re really as a result of COVID, where as the pandemic started, um, you know, it was hard for people who might need a, a medication abortion to get to see their doctor, or there were risks of going to see a doctor in person. And, and so uh, there were pursuits by OBGYN organizations to get FDA to relax the in-person dispensing requirements that applied to mifepristone. And, and there was actually some, some federal court litigation over that where FDA was um, temporarily enjoined from actually enforcing the in-person dispensing requirement. Um, but then all, all that sort of activity led FDA in, in 2021 to say, well, we're actually going to exercise enforcement discretion going forward with respect to the in-person dispensing requirement. Um, you know, we haven't actually officially changed the REMS, like the REMS technically still says in-person dispensing, but we're just going to exercise enforcement discretion. Uh, and then actually at the end of December in 2021, um, FDA came out and said, actually, we, we've reviewed safety. We've, re we've reviewed the REMS top to bottom. Um, and, and we are going to change the REMS um, to actually officially remove the in-person dispensing requirement. Um, that said, I say officially remove it, but for administrative reasons that actually didn't change the REMS, like the REMS, because the REMS change needs to happen when an applicant like Danko submits all the materials, updated documentation, updated strategy for the whole thing. And, and all of that process didn't get completed officially until January of this year. So for, for a couple of years, we'd basically been operating where the in-person dispensing requirement wasn't being enforced. And then finally, fully officially in January, FDA changed the REMS to, to take, take that out. And as part of it, they also established a, a, a created a, a pharmacy certification process um, where, you know, that would help to facilitate this mail order dispensing of, of MIFI and, and um, you know, enable wider access to the drug. Um, so, why is that all that all that relevant for the for the court's analysis? So one of the things the court does, you know, first and foremost, is as as Renee alluded to, was uh, not give a whole lot of deference to FDA's decision making on on safety and effectiveness. And, and the court in Texas came right out and said, we're second guessing FDA's decision making. Now, they asserted they weren't doing that lightly and all of those sorts of things. But what the court did was disagree with FDA fundamentally and found based on its own assessment, the judge's own assessment of mifepristone, that mifepristone offers, quote, little to no benefit over surgical abortion, 
which the court concluded was, quote, a statistically far safer procedure. The court, you know, effectively doing its own statistical analysis, its own clinical analysis of the information that had been presented by AHM uh, to the court, um, which, which raises a lot of questions about, you know, judicial second guessing of FDA decisions where historically that's just never happened. It's certainly not to that extreme. Um, one of the things that the court further found in Texas was that the FDA's actions were, were arbitrary and capricious in the way that it made changes later to the, to the labeling and the product and the REMS and all that in 2016. And in the fact that FDA removed the in-person dispensing requirement in, in 2021 and then officially in, in 2023, uh, FDA's position had been, well, we don't really see any safety problems here. It's been used safely for a couple of decades now. It's got a well-characterized safety profile. We don't, we don't really feel the need for in-person dispensing. Um, but the court questioned that because the court, from the court's perspective, hey, FDA, you changed the adverse event reporting requirements in 2016 to not require reporting of these, of these non, uh, excuse me, non-death adverse events. So how can you point to the lack thereof of those events as evidence that, that the product is, is safe and doesn't need this in-person you know, dispensing requirement? And that, that sort of misses the, the point of the way that FDA adverse event reporting requirements work. Um, because the mifepristone adverse event reporting requirements are pretty much unlike almost any other drug, uh, you know, on the market. Um, in that, well, most drugs that don't have a REMS, there's no adverse event reporting requirement on the provider to report that to FDA. I mean, now certainly many providers do report adverse events to the manufacturer or to FDA. Those are voluntary processes, and of course, good processes to ensure you know post-market surveillance of approved drugs. Um, but the the only legal requirement for adverse event reporting for approved drugs is on the manufacturer to report, you know, the adverse events that they become aware of. And that's good enough for FDA to assess the safety of every drug on the market, pretty much, except for some limited ones who, that do have approved REMS. Um, but the mifepristone REMS, to, to the extent that it required, you know, reporting at the level that it did was pretty much unprecedented. So the fact that FDA took that away wasn't meant to say that FDA wasn't getting access to adverse event information. They were getting access to adverse event information in basically the same way they get it for every other drug over which they're assessing uh, safety in a post-market context. Um, but the court was persuaded. The court in Texas was persuaded by this, the fact that 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 FDA had removed this specific adverse event reporting requirement um, in the REMS. Um, another aspect that was interesting in the court's Decision in, in in Texas and looking at how um, you know how FDA had, had, had rationalized changes to the REMS, um, the court <laughs> looked at the data that FDA provided and said, "Well, but there's not there's not some perfect match in the clinical trials and in the studies that aligns with what FDA approved." And and the court seemed to be suggesting, although it it, it on its face denied that it was requiring a a study match with the approved labeling. It was effectively taking the position that your clinical study and the conditions in the clinical study, you know, need to match the approved labeling. You know, for example, a clinical study might have required an ultrasound as part of um, the clinical study protocol, but yet the ultrasound wasn't mandated in the approved labeling for mifepristone. So the, the the court found that problematic, and the court found FDA's action in approving the labeling that way as arbitrary and capricious. Um, so. I think one of the things that um, has been really interesting is seeing the way that uh, the broader um, life sciences and medical products industry has responded to, to this case and the 
the sort of slippery slope that a decision like this would have in other contexts if, if these sorts of um, rationalizations are, are, are applied in other cases, um, because they do really, if, if the district court's order in Texas were upheld by the Fifth Circuit, and then if it were ultimately upheld on the merits by the Supreme Court, it would have a traumatic impact on on, on the FDA approval process and it would inject significant uncertainty and unpredictability into the process. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, the, the broader industry has really latched on to um, uh, so far. Thanks, Josh. I mean, that's a that's a lot. Um, but the the FDA, you know, one of the things you said um, at the outset was that um, the FDA determined that it was going to exercise enforcement discretion until all of the actual REMS uh, filings had been completed as of January. So, could you help us understand just if the uh, if the Fifth Circuit upholds the decision of the district court, what does that actually mean? Can FDA still exercise its enforcement discretion? How does this work? You know, what what would be the outcome? Yeah, and it's a great, it's a really um, great question, and one that um, has been a focus of a lot of, I think, attention in the weeks between the district court's decision and then the Supreme Court's uh, stay. So uh, a couple, just to just to situate everyone, a couple different um, enforcement discretion situations that that were that are are at issue here. One is just the the prior enforcement discretion for that period in 2021 through January 2023, when FDA was just not enforcing the then in effect in person dispensing requirement. And actually, the district court um, in Texas thought that was that was inappropriate, and that that FDA shouldn't shouldn't have been able to to do that. Um, although generally. Um, under well-established Supreme Court precedent and, and Heckler versus Cheney that, that any lawyer would have learned in administrative law class, um, that case held FDA's decision not to pursue enforcement actions for violations of FDA requirements is generally not reviewable under the Administrative Procedure Act. It basically means FDA doesn't have to go after you know, violations it doesn't want to go after. That, you know, that's its, frankly, it's it, perhaps its most powerful weapon is in the, the ability to decide where to exercise its enforcement resources. And so FDA made the you know determination in 2021, well, we're not going to enforce this particular aspect of the REMS. We're not going to require the manufacturer to impose downstream in-person dispensing requirements on all the parties participating in the REMS. That would ordinarily, I think, have been, been viewed as a classic case of FDA exercising enforcement discretion that would not be reviewable by a court. The district court in Texas thought it thought it was reviewable um, as part of its uh, uh, district, you know, uh, preliminary order. Um, the the enforcement discretion issue that really generated a lot of attention the last couple of weeks before the Supreme Court's stay sort of saved the day for the moment was, okay, what happens if the district court's order as modified by the Fifth Circuit remains in place um, and some of these approvals are, are stayed? Um, what does that mean in reality? And, and, and I think what is important to to, to bear in mind there is if the Supreme Court hadn't stepped in, um, there was a lot of, I think, debate in the in, in the brief in the briefing before the Supreme Court about what exactly FDA would have to do um, to address the the district court's order as modified by the Fifth Circuit. Um, on the one hand, um, and I think both of these things are true. On the one hand, had the Supreme Court's order or had, had the Fifth Circuit's order taken effect, pretty much every piece of mifepristone on the market would have been technically misbranded the moment that that happened. Um, 
whether and the FDA articulated this for a variety of reasons is basically because the labeling of the product, the REMS materials for the product wouldn't then match with the approved version that was in effect based on the court's order because the Fifth Circuit's order would have basically sent the approval sort of back in time to the pre-2016 state of affairs. Everything on the market would affect the 2023 state of affairs. There'd be a mismatch. There would be a misbranding problem legally. Um, and the FDA's briefing to the Supreme Court had basically explained what would need to happen to address that misbranding problem. Um, what in which would be require a lot of Danko and the other manufacturer, the generic manufacturer coming to FDA with updated materials and those getting approved. And that would take some time. And so it wasn't as if, you know, the moment that the that the that the order would go into effect, that we could just suddenly revert to the pre-2016 um, time period. Um, but what FDA didn't say in its uh, Supreme Court briefing um, is that it would actually have to, in which is that, you know, it's other point, what FDA didn't say is that it would actually have to take enforcement action against Danko or GenBioPro or any other distributor of this mifepristone. Now, the, so, such the, that the mifepristone might technically, ne might technically be misbranded, but FDA doesn't necessarily have to do anything about it. And that's, again, based on the principles of, of Heckler versus Cheney. Um, you know, FDA didn't, hasn't, you know, didn't have to explicitly say, you know, we're, we're going to exercise enforcement discretion um, because the Supreme Court, again, stepped in with the stay. But I think they were very much riding the line in their briefing between trying to articulate what it, what it would take to sort of fix the problem that the, that the, district court's order as modified by the Fifth Circuit would have had, which is we have a lot of confusion. The product's technically misbranded. It's going to create probably a chilling effect among all the distributors, among providers. Like, can we still get it? What do we do with the stuff that we currently have on hand? Can we still prescribe that? Um, what about mailing across state lines? Um, all those sorts of things would have created regulatory chaos, as the FDA argued to the Supreme Court. Um, but it wouldn't have necessarily forced FDA to 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 take specific enforcement action. And this is actually something that um, Justice Alito and the Supreme Court alluded to. Um, so the Supreme Court just, it, you know, it, it 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 granted the stay of of the of the decision. But there were two justices who would have denied the applications for stay. And that's Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. Justice Thomas didn't elaborate on his views. Uh, Justice Alito would have denied the applications for stay because in his view, the FDA and Danko had not shown a likelihood of irreparable harm in the interim. And as part of that, he suggested that FDA would avoid any irreparable harm to manufacturers through an exercise of enforcement discretion, despite FDA having said that in the absence of the stay, it would have needed to take certain administrative actions to for the drug to not be considered misbranding. So it's, it's sort of this thing that the drug would have needed to have a bunch of stuff happen for it to not be misbranded, but yet FDA wouldn't have necessarily had to actually enforce against that misbranding. I think it's important on that point about <clears throat> uh, Justice Alito's comments on the enforcement discretion issue. He characterized it as the FDA not obeying the court's order. And so um, and that is just not a correct statement about what the law is about enforcement discretion. And so he was saying, well, they're going to ignore it anyway. So, you know, why should we issue the stay? Um, the other um, thing that I wanted to say about the stay that the Supreme Court issued about Justice Alito's opinion, uh, comments about the stay is he tried to compare the action of the court 
imposing the stay in this case, which basically preserves the status quo before the litigation is fully resolved, which is actually the correct use of a stay. Um, Some of the earlier cases for which the court has been criticized is the court issued stays or did not issue stays, the Supreme Court that is, in ways that allowed changes in the law to happen while the proceeding was going forward. For an example, one of the examples was the um, SBA Texas law that, you know, it conscripts everyone into enforcing the anti-abortion laws in Texas. And, uh, you know, that people cannot um, help uh, uh, people obtain abortions. And, um, uh, and the court refused to stay that Texas statute uh, to preserve, uh, you know, the status quo of abortion availability until the substantive legal issues were um, were fully litigated, and and so that that's really a misuse of you know the court's power to either grant a stay or not grant a stay in these situations. And I think Justice Alito was like was um, using uh, you know comparing cases that are actually not similar. Josh, can I go back to you, Mr. Renee? That was a, a very interesting point. Um, and Josh, thank you for giving us, you know, this the background and the and the tension here with the FDA discretion and kind of as you say, the line that FDA is walking, at least in its briefing and in, in its argument. Um, can we just go back to what this FDA doesn't regulate prescribing? Right. And so could you talk about kind of what FDA is regulating and how that impacts prescribing and the prescribing of mifepristone? Yeah, it's a great question. So so FDA in in general doesn't regulate the practice of medicine. Um, and a lot of the district court's opinion in, in a lot of ways blurs that line about what FDA is exactly regulating and what the objective is here and what FDA was reviewing and approving and in in, in those sorts of things. Um, So you're right that FDA doesn't regulate off-label prescribing. Um, And so, for example, to the extent that, you know, a court said, oh, well, the the change in the approved uh, uh, indication from 49 days to 70 days, we, we should roll that back to 49 days. There's nothing from, from the FDA standpoint that stops a prescriber in his or her medical judgment consistent with state medical practice laws and good science from saying, okay, well, I'm going to prescribe, you know, mifepristone for this patient up to 69 days anyway, or up to 74 days or up to 80 days. Again, off-label prescribing, you know, so, it, you know, that's more of a state law issue to the extent it's an issue and, you know, could also be state tort law, if, you know, if they're malpractice claims and the like, but it's not something that FDA regulates. Um, and, and so the, 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 the idea that somehow the, the, those sorts of changes from the 49 days to the 70 days could, could, um, could limit the use of the product, I, I think is, would be an overstatement. Um, and, and also to the extent that the, uh, approval or the indication of the product were, were rolled back or, um, well, I guess to I'll use a different example to take the example that that the court used when talking about the clinical studies and the data where oh well you know clinical studies had this ultrasound requirement so that should be in the labeling too. There would be nothing from a from an FDA standpoint that would 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 stop a provider, an individual provider, from deciding okay well I'm going to prescribe it this way without doing an ultrasound requirement in my medical judgment. Um, so I think the effect of the district court's uh, 
rationale, I think is a little unclear exactly like how would how would what the district court was was saying actually how would that effect be achieved? I think is a little unclear because of the fact that again, FDA doesn't regulate uh, the practice of medicine. Thanks. So Josh, maybe then we could just, um, and I want to move on to Amanda then to talk about what we did in the Commonwealth. But before we do that, just, you know, one last question about, you touched a little bit on just the response from the pharmaceutical industry generally. Um, and, you know, if we if we talk about how this is a little unclear, at least what the district court would intend its order to mean or how it could be carried out, um, you know, what would be the impact um, on the pharmaceutical industry generally um, if this if this order were to be upheld? Yeah, I think I think the, the the life sciences industry, the medical products industry, extremely concerned by this case. And that's why there are so many interested parties participating in, in, in litigation as amicus, including pharma, Advermed, um, individual pharmaceutical companies, individual executives, food and drug law scholars, former FDA officials, um, you name the, the group, they've been participating in this. And in pharma in particular's, you know, core arguments are that, you know, the district court's order threatens to stifle pharmaceutical innovation by disrupting industry's investment back expectations and reliance on the stability of FDA scientific judgments. Um, and, and, you know, going on, you know, and further saying that, you know, things like the, the unprecedented invalidation of an FDA drug approval jeopardize industries robust investment in research and development. Um, you know, the whole process, the whole medical product development process is dependent on the idea that okay, once you get an approval, like, okay, you're going to have that. And if you, or FDA is going to go through a long process to withdraw approval, um, th th there's an established administrative process in, in the statute and in the regulations where if, if FDA determines it is appropriate to withdraw approval, you follow that. But if a court, if one federal court judge can invalidate that whole thing, that just creates a lot of chaos and really disrupts investment in the industry. And well, hey, should we really invest in this area of, of clinical development? Because there's a chance that there might be some some group that might object to this type of product or this type of therapy and, and challenge it in a federal court after we get FDA approval. So, I mean, I think there's, you know, we we actually know what one of the next challenges will be, and that's on the gender affirming drugs. And then there's also litigation in Texas over, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act requirement for the use of, you know, um, a preventive H, uh, uh, HIV drugs. And so, um, you know, there, there, there's a list developing of things that would be, you know, um, uh, amenable to challenge by, you know, some of the, uh, you know, allied groups with the challengers here. Um, also, I think the device industry is very concerned because, you know, what 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 the courts do here, um, you know, they could carry over to the device industry. I just wanted to point out there is a question in the Q&A about um, how um, judges are selected, how the judges will be selected for the panel for the Fifth Circuit argument. <clears throat> and um, generally speaking, it would be, you know, that the, all the circuits have some random um mechanism for selecting the judges that sit on panels that, um, you know, takes into account, you know, kind of standing recusal orders and things like that for judges who have conflicts. And, uh, you know, the, the issue here, I mean, it highlights the issue here of these single um, division, these, these divisions of the federal districts where a single judge sits um, and therefore, uh, 
you know, uh, pr- uh, plaintiffs can go to, you know, file litigation in those districts, knowing the judge they will get, as opposed to filing it in a division of the district that has multiple judges that would be where they would be subject to this random assignment system. So, I mean, I I think, you know, sort of on the judicial reform side, one of the things that could, should come out of all of this recent experience is that, um, if a, if a litigation is challenging a, a, fe, a nationwide federal policy, that uh, it should be subjected to that the that the litigation should be subject to the random assignment for the district and not allow people just to pick their judge by going to a single judge division. So, really good point, um, Renee. You know, Josh. Actually, I did have one more question for you. Um, uh, the is it possible that a Fifth Circuit decision could be taken up by the Supreme Court on the merits? I I think it's I think it's likely in light of the court having granted the stay that well I think either either way the Fifth Circuit goes I think it's very likely that uh, the the losing party is going to appeal and that we'll we'll have at some point this this is going to go back to the the Supreme Court I. I think it seems pretty unavoidable. Thanks, Josh. Amanda, why don't we turn it to you and talk about the Commonwealth uh, and the response um, uh, from the Commonwealth uh, to uh, these challenges um, on Mifepristone. Sure, thank you. Um, You know, so the Attorney General's office has always been and remains committed to ensuring access to abortion, including medication abortion and Mifepristone specifically, um, in the Commonwealth and and beyond. Um, and that is an interest that is shared by current Attorney General Andrea Joy Campbell, um, as well as the, the Healy Driscoll administration. We are aligned in uh, doing all that we can to ensure continued access to Mifepristone here. But these are also really unprecedented times. You know, this, this case, as we've been talking about, is arising in the context of abortion, but the integrity of the FDA approval process is, is on the line, as we've heard about from, from Josh and from Renee. Um, and the litigations that we've been discussing today, I think, really politicize the FDA in an untenable way with implications that um, that can be felt, I think, well beyond abortion if the alliance case is successful. Um, and as Renee pointed out, I think that's gender affirming care. That's PrEP. It's also vaccines. It's also contraception. And, and that's sort of, I think, any sort of drug with ideological noise around it um, may be at risk as a result of this case. And so this is all new. There is no roadmap um, for states to respond to, to, to these types of attacks on science and on and on the FDA. Um, so our response is one that has really been informed by, by experts, legal experts, subject matter experts, um, uh, uh, our provider community and other stakeholders working in close collaboration with the Healy School Administration, the federal government, and our colleagues and other state attorneys general offices that likewise share our interests in ensuring continued access to Mifepristone. Um, you know, on the litigations, we've, we've been actively supporting the FDA in the Alliance case by filing amicus briefs at all stages, and, and we'll continue to do so. There's a press release um, issued by my office during this webinar about 20 minutes ago announcing our, our multi-state brief uh, in, in the Fifth Circuit. Um, the Healy School Administration uh, also issued an executive order to underscore that our, our shield law and abortion access law that was enacted over the summer in response to Dobbs applies uh, to medication abortion um, and at the same time announced a stockpile of mifepristone that would um, provide the state with a one-year supply if um, if for some reason 
um, if if Mifflin-Pristone's approval is is ultimately pulled as a result of this um, this litigation. Um, in the process of doing that, we've also reviewed all of our state our state regulations for any um, any potential state implications should Mifflin-Pristone um, continue to be used uh, if the approval um, was rescinded or if the um, if um, if the drug were misbranded or, or sort of any implications uh, as a result of these cases. And we have cleared the way so that there wouldn't be any state law implications for providers who continue to use mifepristone, regardless of what happens in um, in the Alliance case. And we've just been generally sort of doing a lot of uh, prep and contingency planning with the stakeholders that I've already mentioned to make sure that we're, we're well positioned, regardless of what happens and how these case, uh, how these cases play out. Um, and you know, to that end, we we in the attorney general's office are also making an investment in um, in the protection of, of abortion rights, medication abortion, particularly by forming a reproductive justice unit um, that will tackle these and and other and other issues. Thanks, Amanda. Um, and could you just talk a little bit? You mentioned the Shield Law. Could you talk about the Shield Law? You know what the Shield Law is, um, and specifically, you know, action related to mifepristone that would be protected by the Shield Law. Right. Um, sure. Happy to do that. So, um, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, uh, the legislature enacted a law that was um, drafted by a coalition, including the AG's Office, Reproductive Equity Now the ACLU of Massachusetts, um, that really was intended to look across the board at Massachusetts laws and the way in which we, um, our state institutions may facilitate in or out of state consequences um, as a result of abortion bans in other, in other states. So that law um, did a number of things, including um, uh, limiting discretionary re um, rendition or extradition, um, preventing discrimination against abortion providers in the provision of medical malpractice insurance, uh, including any you know premium um, premium risk classification adjustments. Um, it erected a number of barriers to using our court systems in Massachusetts um, to facilitate out-of-state consequences. Um, we went sort of as far as we could go, consistent with the the full faith and credit. Um, clause of the U.S. Constitution, and um, and we also ensured that uh, no provider, from physicians to pharmacists um, to everything in between, um, would face licensing or other in-state consequences for um, for continuing to provide abortion care, notwithstanding out-of-state abortion bans. Um, what's really unique about the Massachusetts Shield Law is that it applies regardless of where the patient is located at the time. Um, that treatment is provided. So in other words, it um, its protections would apply in an instance where a provider mails pills across state lines. Um, and with respect to mifepristone, you know, there, there are a couple of, um, of really important, I think, um, provisions in there that, that are, are helpful with mifepristone. Um, you know, one of which is, you know, there are, in addition to abortion bans in other states, there are additional bans in some states that specifically target the dispensing of mifepristone by mail. Um, so uh, the law, the SHIELD law in Massachusetts prevents our state institutions from facilitating any consequences in Massachusetts um, or facilitating any out-of-state consequences for, uh, for providers who dispense mifepristone, including by mail across across state lines. Likewise, um, what we have seen in Massachusetts and across the country is that notwithstanding the medical malpractice insurance provisions of that law, that premiums are continuing to rise uh, to an exorbitant level for medical malpractice insurance. 
um, and that has been um, exacerbated by the recent litigation around medical around uh, medication abortion. Um, so we are uh, we the executive order that I mentioned before addresses the medical malpractice issue squarely, and the Division of Insurance has since issued guidance clarifying um, that um, that medical malpractice insurers uh, cannot um, cannot adjust um, premiums or risk classifications um, or discriminate generally against abortion providers on the basis of out-of-state abortion bans, including those bans that specifically target medication abortion. Um, but you know there are limits to that law. That the the that law you know um, necessarily applies only in Massachusetts. So as long as a provider is in Massachusetts, um, those those protections will be available to them. But if they um, were to travel outside of Massachusetts, the the um, the protections would not be available to them. Um, and likewise, um, there are complicated questions around. Um, federal law implications um, and, and, you know, sort of thinking about potential administration changes down the road. Um, so we think sort of in the context of medication abortion, um, one of the most um, important roles we can play is, is continuing to be in close communication with the FDA and with the federal administration around uh, contingency planning and these litigations, um, as well as our, our provider community to make sure that, um, that we are addressing any questions, confusion, concerns that they that they may have and that our response is as comprehensive as it can be to again ensure continued access to mifepristone in in Massachusetts. Thanks Amanda. Uh, we've got a few minutes left um, and I want to turn it back to Dr. White uh, because we you know we started with you talking about care um, and the use of mifepristone in care um, and then we had a discussion about how um, you know, medication used to treat patients um, has been the subject of this litigation and all the while you're still treating um, patients. And so could you just tell us, you know, how has this litigation impacted your practice, impacted the care for patients, you know, your thoughts on outlook going forward or thoughts or concerns that you have with respect to patient care? Yeah. So to date, patient care hasn't really been directly affected. It's the providers, I think, who have borne, and the administrators who have borne the brunt of the roller coaster that we've been on for the past few months. Our patients are just living their lives and they expect that they're just going to be able to get full spectrum care when they need it. And of course, we really hope that we get to continue to provide that to them. We family planning community is incredibly happy with the reprieve for now, but I think it's been said earlier, it just confirmed the status quo. The only victories here are maintaining what already was set. There was no advancement towards trying to really expand or solidify access for people. We are very, everyone locally is incredibly relieved to be in Massachusetts, where we think the SHIELD law really sets the standard on what executive and legislative support can look like in a state. Um, we recognize that we are living in a bit of a bubble, but we know that if this ruling is upheld, we can be forced to use a less effective regimen to that will lead to more complications. And MISO-only procedures are effective and safe and much safer than pregnancy once again, but it's a much more miserable experience for people with a higher ongoing pregnancy rate. And it's not great. It also, of course, affects miscarriage care, which affects one in three people who are going to get pregnant. And the fact that the specter of the Comstock Act was raised, it feels, as a non-lawyer, it feels like 
all the boundaries are off. And even if mifepristone was sort of the drug on trial, so to speak, there's nothing to keep a court, including the Supreme Court, from sweeping misoprostol up as well in terms of medications that can act to terminate a pregnancy, which would then not only affect all abortion care, miscarriage care, but labor induction, treatment of postpartum hemorrhage. We're talking the entire spectrum of reproductive health care really being on the table. Um, and in our really darkest moments, when we're really catastrophizing, the family planning community feels like we are one presidential election away from a federal abortion ban, that no matter what efforts we've gone through in Massachusetts to try to shore up access for the citizens of the Commonwealth and anyone who visits us, a federal abortion ban, to our understanding, would supersede all of that. And the only question would be, how bad would that be? Would it be Lindsey Graham's 15-week ban? Would it be a six-week ban, a total ban? Um, so the bottom line is that while we are all really happy right now and our patients are getting the care they need, this is not remotely over. So I, I want to emphasize what Dr. White said about pregnancy, the risks of pregnancy being the comparator here. When I teach these cases, these reproductive rights cases in constitutional law, that's where I start the conversation. Okay, what is the experience of pregnancy in the country? And the most disturbing thing about all of this litigation on, you know, abortion, surgical abortion bans, the, uh, you know, attack on mifeprestone and perhaps the other drugs is that um, in, in the Dobbs opinion, um, hardly any consideration about the impact on the health of women was discussed at all. And I think that that is what is really the most concerning thing about all of this, that that is just not uh, part of that side of the conversation. And I think that the, an important thing about, you know, panels like this one is to try to remind us that that's really what we're talking about here. And that last thing I would say, you know, I'm not a doctor, but my understanding is that these drugs are also used for some things outside, a limited number of things outside of pregnancy and, you know, treating miscarriages and so forth. And so um, it would cut off access to those other patients too, who have not, who are not involved in this controversy about abortion whatsoever. And so, you know, the people have just not thought through the do extensive ramifications of what they're doing here. Justice Alito's response talked about the harm to Danko, right? It was about the harm to the companies, whether there was a harm or not. There was no mention of the harm to women and people who could become pregnant, which I think was very telling about where certain justices are on the subject. Thank you so much to all of our panelists. Um, for a great discussion today. Um, I personally learned a lot um, and thank you all for joining us. I'll turn it back over to Devin from the BBA to close us out. Hi everybody, I just wanna hop on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking today. And thank you to our audience for joining us this morning. We certainly look forward to seeing you all at future events. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thanks all. Thanks.